The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Oh, we have a good one lined up today. We're going to be looking at Flannery O'Connor. She's a longtime favorite of mine, one of those famous authors who you think you should read, and they seem kind of like medicine. That's how you approach it, because everyone talks about how great they are. But then you do read them and you think, medicine? This is syrup. It's like Mark Twain. See this? Old man, white hair. Everyone tells me I should read him. Da da da. And then, wait, what? This is really funny. It's actually funny. It would be funny if someone said this today. That's Mark Twain. Go read his essay on James Fenimore Cooper sometime. What a classic. What a classic takedown. If you're into literature, and I'm going to assume that you are, you're listening to this podcast, it's like the equivalent of porn for you. Literary, it's literary porn. Have you read that essay? I should do a whole episode just on, just on that essay. Here's a little bit. He's talking about the novel Deerslayer. This is Twain's review of Deerslayer. He writes, Cooper's art has some defects. In one place in Deerslayer, and in the restricted space of two-thirds of a page... Cooper has scored 114 offenses against literary art out of a possible 115. It breaks the record. Don't you want to keep reading? It gets better. He dissects the flaws. And you'll never read James Fenimore Cooper the same way again. Hey, are you reading Cooper, by the way? The Last of the Mohicans? Did someone tell you to read that? Did you read the College Board's recommended list of books for college readers? You don't need to read. James Fenimore Cooper. That was part of our two-part episode about the greatest books ever. Cooper is off the list. Anyway, read the Twain essay. It's a wonderful essay, a masterful piece of writing by a genius. O'Connor's a little like this, too. I don't mean the humor, although she is humorous. It's a bitter, deadpan humor. But this is the thing. This is how she's like Twain. You hear Flannery O'Connor's name all the time, and you hear that she's Catholic. You can see those pictures of her wearing those cat's eye glasses. That was me. That was how I first encountered Flannery O'Connor, that picture of her with the cat's eye glasses, and I thought, this is my grandmother. And it was, essentially. That was my grandmother's era. And although I totally loved both my grandmothers, I didn't expect them to be suspenseful, or subversive, or shockingly violent, or darkly funny, or extremely good at their craft. Well, actually, they were that, but their craft was not fiction writing, was making pancakes with lots of butter. Hey, speaking of loving grandmothers, I hope you were fortunate enough to grow up with loving grandmothers yourself. And wouldn't those grandmothers be pleased that you're listening to the History of Literature podcast? Of course they would be. Well, why not make them even happier by subscribing today? You can do so by signing up at iTunes and Stitcher. (laughs) Oh man, guys, we have officially reached rock bottom. This might be the worst promotion ever. It's not only bad, but completely shameless. Your grandmother would be proud. What's next? Puppies? Who wrote that? You? You, in the corner. You? Is that... Why are you here? Why are you just watching me? Why are you even in here? Just to get... No, no, don't look away. Put your hand down. Covering your eyes isn't going to save you here. Back to the show. My apologies for the promotion, but we do like subscribers. 
And we're very appreciative of you telling all your friends and sharing us and all that good stuff. I've been getting some amazing emails lately. I love to get them. I respond to all of them. And it's me responding. It's not my staff. So take a few clicks. Tell us what you're thinking about. Rate us, review us, and really make our day. Okay, back to Flannery O'Connor. So I was wrong about her. I was misled by the photos, maybe. Although I have since encountered one amazing photo of Flannery O'Connor. She's with a couple of writer friends. This was when one of her trips to the north. She was in Iowa. She was laughing in this photo. She looks very young. And the origin of the photo is that it was taken at the Amana Colonies of all places. Maybe that's what she was laughing at on her trip with Arthur Kessler. Arthur Kessler, the guy who stared totalitarianism in the face. The author of Darkness at Noon. And he and Flannery O'Connor and another writer, Roby McCauley, are visiting the Amana colonies. I think it was a, an excursion from their stint at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. They end up going to the Amana colonies, those seven little villages that formed their own communal society and made their own crafts. It's kind of a, an old-world tourist kind of thing. They turn butter there, that, that kind of thing, make crafts, sell them. You go and you, you meet the people, you go to some barns, eat some fresh dairy products. I guess that's what you do when you're attending the University of Iowa Writers Workshop. You write, then you go stir crazy and you try to get out and about. You go out for a drive, you look at some cows, and you think, time to get back to writing. Or you go visit the Amana Colonies laugh about something. It's not explained in the photo what they're laughing at, but that'll send you back to the writing desk. Maybe that's why Iowa is so successful. It's like a, a soft prison where you can, you're free to leave, go out and see the cows. So there's Flannery there with Kessler and Macaulay laughing at something in the Amana colonies. Maybe they were watching someone churn butter, make a table leg. I don't know. Maybe the table leg just flew off the lathe, knocked some Norwegian in the head. I don't know. I don't know what makes people laugh at the Amana colonies. It's old-timey fun of some sort. Do you know what the Amana colonies are called? There are seven villages. They have names. One of them is just called Amana. That one, that one, they got there first, I suppose. Sometimes they call themselves Maine Amana. We're the Maine Amana. There's seven of us. We're the main one, even though they're not the biggest. Middle Amana, that's the largest. <laughs> how did they get, how did they pick these names? We're Amana, all right. Well, we're Middle Amana. Then another one grabbed a name, South Amana. There's West Amana, East Amana. You can see a pattern here. High Amana. Very proud, that one, being on the little hill. And then the seventh one is called Homestead. Homestead. <laughs> That's the seventh one. North Amana was on the table. Nobody had taken North Amana. Homestead. You get the feeling that they're maybe not really into this thing. Their hearts are elsewhere. Yeah, we'll be part of the Amana colonies. We're not going to name ourselves Amana. Everyone's doing that. We're going to call ourselves Homestead. Actually, they couldn't be North Amana. They are the southernmost Amana colony. <laughs> That's what their name probably is, a protest. You can see the town elders going to the, the leadership of the... Uh, they show up at the Amana Colonies meeting. Okay, here we are. We've decided on our name, South Amana. 
Well, that's already taken. What? But we're all the way down here. We are. <laughs> all right, fine. We'll be homestead. Maybe that's what Flannery and her friends were laughing at. How South Amana stole Homestead's rightful name. Anyway, that photo makes me wish that I had known Flannery O'Connor. And although I thought of her as grandmotherly, it was my grandmother when she was young. So young, before I was born. Flannery lived a young life. Her struggles with her disease and her religion and her her southernness, her identity, I think all those things aged her somewhat ahead of her time. She was mature as a writer and a thinker, but she was young. She was always young. She, she was never old. When she was at the Amana colonies in that photo, she was 22. At 26, she was diagnosed with lupus, the disease that she knew was deadly. She knew what lupus meant because she had seen her father suffer from it and die when she was only 16. So she was diagnosed with lupus at 26, and she was given four years to live. She eventually lived 13 years with the disease, writing all the time, even as her body began to suffer increasingly. And then she passed away at 39. 39. So young. This photo of her at the Amana Colonies, you should check it out. It's on my website, historyofliterature.com and jackwilson.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com. She's young. She's having fun. And it's the sort of Flannery O'Connor that you can imagine writing the stories that she did. So, I was wrong about her once. Because she was my grandmother's generation, I attributed all these grandmotherly qualities to her. She wasn't a grandmother. She was a young, vibrant writer. And then I was wrong about her a second time. Because I had an entire plan for this episode that I basically had to rethink, tear it all up. I was working from memory, and I forgot something important, something crucial to our understanding of Flannery O'Connor and how we approach her works today, something we need to pursue, and I had left it out. So, here's what we're going to do. This is going to be a two-part episode. I'm going to go with my original plan, just as it was, which is going to eventually lead us into the tricky area, the part that I had forgotten. The first part of this two-part episode. The first episode will frame our question, the questions that we need to analyze further. Then, in part two, we will take that on directly. Okay? Hey, I never said this would be an easy journey. It's a bumpy ride. So, buckle up. Here we go. Flannery O'Connor, part one. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus 
in Apple Podcasts. Okay, so let's dive into our examination of Flannery O'Connor and her short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, which is probably her best. It's my favorite. For those of you completely new to O'Connor, she was a writer from the American South. She was born in Savannah, Georgia, a port city, an artistic community. She was born in 1925 and raised very Catholic. She went through a, an upheaval. Her childhood went through an upheaval when she was a teenager and her father was diagnosed with lupus. He grew more and more ill and the family was forced to move to the mother's hometown, a rural village called Milledgeville, where they lived on a farm. Now, I grew up in a small town. Let me tell you, if anyone came from anywhere, it's one thing to, to deal with living in a small town yourself when that was your natural environment. But once in a while, someone would move in. Would move in from Chicago or Baltimore or Madison, Wisconsin or San Francisco, and they were not happy, especially as a teenager. So for Flannery to move from Savannah, and even though, I mean... Okay, Savannah's not Manhattan, but it's full of artists and writers and professionals and beautiful old homes, beautiful streets. There's history, there's culture. And to go from that environment to Milledgeville, farm country, I would think that you would become a bit of a snob might struggle with who you are, how the people around you are not that. People around you are something else. Flannery wrote her first novel, and her neighbors passed it around in brown paper bags, scandalized. And one of them finally bragged that she took it out to her backyard and burned it. It came a little later, we're jumping ahead in her story, but that's who these people were. That's where... Flannery found herself, and this is before the internet, so there's no reaching out. There's no keeping in touch with old friends other than through letters. There's no finding your real community. There's no way to do that as a teenager. You don't get to talk on the phone long distance, and you don't get to see other people. So you read, and you think, you write, you get books. You get magazines, and you know, you just know that you don't fit where you are. You're surrounded by these new people, and they're trying to turn you into something you're not. They're trying to make you like them. Well, they're not actually setting out to do that necessarily, but they kind of are, because they assume things about you. They assume that you'll like the things they like. They're not trying to be mean, they're just trying to include you. But you don't like those things, and so you struggle. I imagine there was a lot of this going on, because you can see it, you can see the remnants of it in Flannery's writing. She observed the people around her carefully, and sharply, and with brutal honesty. That move gave her clear eyes, I think, very clear eyes. Let her see things as an outsider. She didn't stay there that long. She broke out. She left for Iowa, either 20 or 21. But then she returned. She returned to the farm. That was home. An uneasy sense of home. Home was being near her family. But her family life was needy. It was hard and sad. So in the midst of all this, she wrote. She wrote some novels, but really, it's her short stories that give her her place in American literary history. She's a brilliant writer. She's an important writer. She really has no peer. She has no, no, no direct comparison Eudora Welty and William Faulkner are the two obvious and most frequent comparisons. 
maybe Carson McCullers, one or two others, but O'Connor is so marvelous and so different from everyone else. Before, since, why is that? Many would say it's her Catholicism, the way her restless faith suffused her writing. There's shocking violence in her writing and the redemption. There's a bending toward redemption. Here's her quote. Here's her quote about violence. Violence, she said, is strangely capable of returning my characters to reality and preparing them to accept their moment of grace. What a beautiful quote. Strangely capable. Returning my characters to reality and preparing them to accept. That's, well, that's could be a summary of the ending of A Good Man is Hard to Find. We'll get to that. There is Catholicism that is important to Flannery O'Connor's works, but there's more to it than that, too. There's also her devotion to her craft, maybe the perfection of her craft. Recently, I recorded an episode where Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, and I discussed endings. In researching that show, I spent a lot of time digging into the Joycean epiphany and how it transformed short stories. And came in the early 20th century. O'Connor got started in the 1940s. She was well aware of the way that stories were ending, the way that Henry James and others had changed them in novels, and the way that short stories, literary, artistically ambitious short stories were ending. It moved on from the O. Henry type of ending, the surprise twist. They ended with ambiguity, with insight rather than action, rather than big, bold, broad brush stroke plot endings. This wasn't Shakespeare or an opera ending with dead bodies strewn about the stage. And it wasn't the Victorian novel's way of ending a, a book where they handed out marriages and other prizes in the crowd-pleasing wind-up that Victorian novels became famous for. Flannery O'Connor came in a different era from that. Her era was the one where imitators, admirers, followers of Joyce had characters gazing out the window and reflecting on something they had just suddenly realized. A revelation, an epiphany, a moment charged, moment in reality charged with understanding, with grace. That's how stories ended. And Flannery said this about an aunt of hers. For her aunt, stories are never ended until everyone is either married or shot dead. There's something beautiful in that too. Something pure. That storytelling before it became intellectualized. Before insight, the acquisition of insight replaced action and strong physical resolution. It's storytelling for a more innocent reader. Storytelling, one might argue, with deeper roots in human nature. And what startles us about our condition. What we most strive for, love. And what we most fear, death. It's deep in our core. And it pulls us all the way back. It's in our ancestry our connection to the earliest humans and the stories they told. Well, maybe that's oversimplified because as we saw in the Epic of Gilgamesh, way back in episode one, there were a lot of insights to be had in that story too. That ending was full of insights for Gilgamesh. Insight has always been key. But insight as the resolution of a narrative is different marriage or death as a resolution. It's a different kind of story. It's storytelling for people who like detective stories and romance novels and crime stories. That's the kind of story that the aunt is looking for. And it's the kind of story you might tell when you're visiting with your neighbor. Did you hear about so-and-so? Her daughter's getting married. That's the end. That's the end of the anecdote. Or her son died in the war. 
I used to listen to my grandmother read aloud the letters that she received from her sister, who had moved to Arizona when her husband was having trouble with his lungs. That was made worse by the harsh Wisconsin winters, so they moved the family to Arizona. And when I was growing up, we would make visits to my grandmother's house, and my grandmother would read the letters from Aunt Dot as she was giving her sister Joe the news, telling her the stories about the relatives and all their other friends and neighbors and acquaintances that they had made in Arizona. And you know what? People were getting married and shot dead. That is just like Flannery O'Connor's aunt. They were in the hospital with diseases. They were getting divorced. Someone had started having an affair. Someone else's daughter was accepted into college. That was how these stories ended. Or someone had died in a car accident. How does James Joyce end Araby? Remember? Here's the last sentence. Gazing up into the darkness, I saw myself as a creature driven and derided by vanity, and my eyes burned with anguish and anger. It's a beautiful ending, very precise emotional state, but that's not the kind of ending that my Aunt Dot and my grandmother would share with one another. That was not part of their storytelling vocabulary, their, their bag of techniques. It was not the kind of book my grandmother read either. She read big, sprawling novels, potboilers, wars and drama, and backstabbing and killings and secrets and marriages. That's how stories, that's how stories wrapped up how they ended. And Flannery O'Connor, I think, was somewhere in the middle of these two possibilities, somewhere between her aunt and James Joyce. Her stories have epiphanies, and they're moments of grace, but they're also tied to plot. She talked about stories being surprising and inevitable, and no one has ever had a better description of what a highly successful short story does well what it needs to do well. And okay, Aristotle actually said something very similar first. But O'Connor gets points for perfecting the concept in her art. We're going to see this in A Good Man is Hard to Find when we get there. But first, here's another quotation. Writing a novel, she said, is a terrible experience during which the hair often falls out and the teeth decay. I'm always irritated by people who imply that writing fiction is an escape from reality. It is a plunge into reality, and it's very shocking to the system. End quote. Flannery O'Connor gave us, she gave us so much of herself when she was writing these stories. Now, I wanted to tell you about this too. I have one degree of separation from Flannery O'Connor. I need to mention here a professor of mine, an old professor from years ago, named Richard Stern. He was a, a creative writing professor, although I didn't have him for that. I had him for literature. I took two courses of his. I think one was called Studies in Narrative, and another was called Towards Modernity. He was a writer, maybe the first novelist I had ever met. Stern was, this was the quote one reviewer wrote, he was almost famous for not being famous. <laughs> it's a great quote. Another quote was that he was, quote, the best American author of whom you have never heard. It was a curious position to be in. Stern himself once said, I was a has-been before I'd been a bin. <laughs> He was close friends with Saul Bellow and Philip Roth, whose literary fortunes just rose and rose and rose and rose. They started out together like three rockets on the launching pad. The other two shot off, one to the moon, the other to Mars. And Stearns just stayed where it was, shooting out a fury of combustible gases before the scientists finally have to abort the mission, failed to launch. Philip Roth used to send stern drafts to tear apart. He respected him that much. 
And on the morning that Saul Bellow won his Nobel Prize, he had a small gathering of friends. He lifted his glass. They popped the champagne, poured it out. He lifted his glass and pointed at Stern and said, To your Nobel. And yet the rocket just sat on the launch pad, all that fire, all that heat, going nowhere. Why? My theory, which is probably very heavily based on knowing the man, maybe too heavily, seeing him in action, seeing him dealing with others. So I could be completely wrong about this. I might be biased by personal experience. But my theory is that he suffered from a a kind of smallness of spirit. He was generous in many ways. In many ways, he was big and broad. But he was also famous for not treating people very well. I came to believe that his own personality flaws had cramped his writing. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe there will be a critical reawakening. He certainly had all the tools. He had all the skills, all the knowledge, all the ability. And yet his books are forgotten now. Maybe people don't want to read a book called Other Men's Daughters by someone who seems a little too absorbed in his own ego, his own efforts to stave off aging and insecurity by having affairs with younger women. Maybe that's kind of book we've gotten beyond now. An older man in love with a younger woman. Fine. There's room in there. There's room in the literary world for a book like that. Other men's daughters. I'm not, I'm not going to be rereading that one anytime soon. Stern had some real gifts. He was an odd and cantankerous teacher. I remember he started one class, one course, by saying on the first day, I have given A's before, but I won't be giving any this semester. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks, teach. Another thing he said was, I do hold office hours, or I should say an office hour, but I'm not going to tell you when or where it will be held. <laughs> In some ways, the class was agony. I embarrassed myself several times. That'll be a story for another day. I remember one student referred once to Proust. <laughs> like, well, I think that's in Proust. I thought Stern might stand up and walk out of the room. Once I went to a bookstore in Evanston is on the north side of Chicago, a northern suburb of Chicago. It's the home of Northwestern. A lot of good bookstores up there. I went up there, kicking around. I noticed one of Stern's books. So I bought it. And the bookstore owner said, what course do you have him for? <laughs> there were no other customers buying Stern's books, only his students trying to figure out more about the man trying to unlock his secrets. Once he was giving a reading, I went to it, and Philip Roth was in the audience. There was probably 20 people there in this little bookstore, sitting in chairs, and Philip Roth was just sitting there in one of the chairs, and Stern seemed very nervous. He seemed very self-conscious that the owner of the bookstore spent more time thanking Philip Roth for coming then introducing Stern. <laughs> Poor Stern. And then when it was time to sign the books, I kind of hung around a little bit so I could hear what was going on, hear the conversation. And Stern was signing the books and he was correcting typos. He would turn to page 37, cross out a, a word, replace a comma with a period, that kind of thing. I heard him say, it doesn't make any sense the way they have it. <laughs> it was like one by one correcting his book. And he could be mean. There were stories about him humiliating people. But I'm going to defend him because he was generous too. He was, he was tireless, a defender, an advocate. 
He loved literature, loved great literature. And he was in the mix himself. He was in the game, fighting and hustling, being a literary guy, spending his life doing that, loving and hating, fighting battles, writing essays, writing criticism, doing his best with his own fiction. He was a big-hearted man and a narrow, pinched one at the same time. He was probably at his best with his peers, who treated him as their equal. And then he went out in the real world, and nobody treated him that way, and it made him bitter and frustrated. But I learned from him. I learned what he read and how he read it. He exposed me to Proust and Rilke and Kierkegaard and Beckett, many others. And so, there he is, the one writer in my young life, and I find myself being drawn to creative writing, to fiction, and I could not have had a weirder model because he could not have been any more different from me. And I'm trying to figure out who he is and how he got that way and what it means that he writes novels. How does one do this? How does one earn a living at this? Who picks you? And nobody seems to buy his books. But there he is, the novelist I know. And he keeps popping up in a lot of biographies I was reading, a lot of essays. He's always described as a novelist. He's always described as a friend of Saul Bellow. He's always there with a good quote. Stern, of course, here's the passage I remember from Mark Harris's book about Saul Bellow. Mark Harris wrote Bang the Drum Slowly. He wrote baseball books. He wrote a book about Saul Bellow called Saul Bellow Drumlin Woodchuck. It's actually called that. And there's a, a scene when some guys were arguing over something in Proust what some passage or other said. And then Harris says, Stern jumped to his feet, pulled out a copy of Remembrance of Things Past, and of course turned right to the passage. That was Stern. That's what it told me about who Stern was. And he could stand up and turn right to the page, and that everyone recognized, well, let's just, let's just ask Stern, he'll know. The of course in that sentence of course, turned right to the passage. That tells you how Stern was perceived by his pals and his group, where he stood within that group. That's the sunnier side of the man. Weighed against this were his failed marriages, his estranged children, students who loathed him. The general take on him was that his own dreams had been ruined, so now he wanted to ruin everyone else's too. There was a rumor that he single-handedly kept the creative writing department tiny, at my school, he wanted to be the only gatekeeper there, and he wanted to keep the gate shut tight, mostly. So, that's who I was trying to investigate in those years, my only model as a writer, and I kept seeing these strange moments of success. I mean, really, how many writers does Saul Bellow toast? And yet, he has these horrible moments of failure, too. Somewhat <laughs> going on kind of long about Richard Stern, my apologies, but someone should write a movie about this guy. He was famously misguided. He oversaw the Chicago Review. He once squelched a story. We're not running this. Garbage. <laughs> it turned out to be an excerpt of Naked Lunch, the famous book by William S. Burroughs, the sort of story that a university journal would kill to publish. Something that puts the journal on a map. Nope. Rejected by Stern. Or, he once reviewed a book for the New York Times Book Review. He panned it, said it was repetitive and monotonous and an emotional hodgepodge. He said it was not a novel. That was his quote. This is not a novel. And it gasped for want of craft and sensibility. That book, Catch-22 by Joseph Eller. <laughs> Oops. All of Stern's novels combined have sold fewer copies than Catch-22. That novel. <laughs> Turns out it was a novel. That's Stern. He won a few prizes. He interviewed Jorge Luis Borges, for God's sake. And yet, he always fell short. 
always failed to launch. He was fascinating to me. I owed him a lot. Someday I'll, I'll tell that whole story. I've told bits and pieces of it before, here and there, but sometime I'll really try to do it justice. But this story, this whole entire long extended digression into Richard Stern is really because of his friendship with a single author, Flannery O'Connor. I was floored when I learned this. It could not seem more different. Stern, the East Coast intellectual the forbidding, highbrow novelist, the guy who traveled to Europe and met Tomas Mann for lunch and rode on gondolas with Ezra Pound when the two of them were living in Venice, and Flannery, a kind of southern saint, a regional writer, the one whose work transcended her location, a Catholic living with her mother, wearing those cat's eye glasses and the horrible, horrible ending her struggle with the painful disease, the early death at age 39. I could see Stern with Bellow and Roth, Chicago connections, Jews, smartasses, bookish professors. But Stern and Flannery O'Connor were friends. They wrote joking letters to one another. How? How? Why? What, what drew those two together? Stern was in Iowa in 1952, which is a little later than Flannery, who was there in the late 1940s, but she didn't actually meet Stern until 1959, when she gave a reading at the University of Chicago. He hosted. They hit it off, and they wrote letters to one another, and eventually, after she died, he published her letters along with a remembrance, and they became an essential part of her biography. We know more about Flannery O'Connor because of her correspondence with Richard Stern, because of this exchange of letters that they had. It's a strange but important piece of the puzzle of figuring out who Flannery O'Connor is. In one letter from 1963, she tells him he needs to come to Georgia to write, and she jokingly asks him if he really wants to be known as a writer who publishes one novel per year. She says that she herself takes seven years to write a novel, and she wants to keep it that way. She says, you're showing up writers like me who only publish a novel once every seven years, and you ought to examine your conscience. Remember, this is 12 years after she's been given four years to live. She died the next year. It's a very poignant letter to read now, knowing what we now know. Then... In a letter from 1964, she says she thinks of him often, up there among the inner luxuals of the chilly north. She spells inner luxuals like that, inner, I-N-N-E-R, L-U-C-K-C-H-U-L-S, inner luxuals. It's teasing, it's playful. But she's not including Stern among them, among I mean, she's, she's including Stern among them, but not one of them. I couldn't understand it. To me, Stern was like the embodiment of, a, of an intellectual, of a northern, chilly intellectual. But to her, he wasn't. He was a friend. Made me rethink him, made me rethink her. I realized I had underestimated Stern, that he was broader and deeper and less of a snob than I'd thought. He was forbidding with his students, maybe, but he was different with his friends. I also learned that Flannery was bigger. She was funny. She had wide-ranging interests. And she, for all of her outsider status in Milledgeville, Georgia, was also kind of an insider. She wasn't the Emily Dickinson of the South, down there on a farm with her family, writing masterpieces alone. She was integrated into the literary scene. She knew Arthur Kessler and Richard Stern. All the writers in the North, she stood apart from it, but she was aware of it, and she had enough ties to it to comment on it and disparage it. It was like everything else. Everything else she treated, rural women, older people, her religion. 
She was apart from it, but aware of it, and with enough ties to comment and disparage. You can replace all those its with Catholicism and Southern culture and America and humanity. All of those things she was apart from, but aware, close enough to comment and disparage. Flannery O'Connor used to praise Faulkner. She said, quote, I keep clear of Faulkner so my own little boat won't get swamped, end quote. And she also made reference to Southern writers like herself being haunted by him. And part of this is generational, I think. He won the Nobel Prize when she was only 24. He was already... His career was nearly complete when she was just getting started. And really... Though, are we positive that he will outlast her? I think a good man is hard to find might be read as long as fiction is read. Will Faulkner? Maybe. Maybe. The Library of America volume of her collected works has outsold his. Take that for whatever it's worth. When I was teaching, I taught Flannery O'Connor's stories, and they were always successful. I taught a course on Southern literature. Her stories were the favorite. Favorite is kind of a funny word. They were the most successful. Teaching-wise, they provoked. Students were shocked, put on alert, aroused, awakened. And then, years later, when I found that picture of her online with Arthur Kessler laughing at the Amana colonies, I felt a chill come over me. She died so young, and I had always thought of her as so fussy, old, wrong about that. She was funny, sharp, spirited, and brash. She took on the world. If you remember, I quoted her during the episode we did with Professor Kyle Kiefer, reading the New Testament as literature. Well... She had said, well, if the sacrament is only a metaphor, then the hell with it. <laughs> Great quote. Now listen to this quote and think about Richard Stern, as I've described him. She said, quote, I have found, in short, from reading my own writing, that my subject in fiction is the action of grace in territory largely held by the devil. I have also found that what I write is read by an audience which puts little stock either in grace or the devil. You discover your audience at the same time and in the same way that you discover your subject. But it is an added blow. What a quotation. What a quotation. An added blow. Discovering who your audience is is an added blow. Who were these readers? She was talking about who cared little for grace or the devil. Who did she mean by that? Who did she mean? The audience that puts little stock either in grace or the devil. Did she mean the inner luxuals who praised her? She also said that every piece of writing from the South would be called grotesque by the Northerners unless it actually was grotesque, in which case it would be called realistic. Who was she saying that about? Her readership? The publishing world? Who did she hope would be reading her works? Who was the audience that she discovered that gave her the added blow once she discovered it? Her aunt? People like her aunt? Looking for marriages and characters shot dead? Richard Stern? The northern, chilly interluxuals, someone in between. Is Flannery O'Connor my favorite author? She's very, very close. I read a story like A Good Man is Hard to Find and think how lucky we are to have had her. She's one of a kind. She's like Mark Twain or Edgar Allan Poe. She doesn't fit into the tradition. She stands apart. She stands alone. She's her own mountain. How lucky American literature is that Flannery O'Connor graced us with her personality and her sensibility and her talent and her genius and her hard, hard work on our behalf, even 
that she herself was suffering and dying. She didn't give up. She worked. She makes the tapestry that we have, the tapestry of literature, that much more colorful. So, here we go. Have a treat for you now. Listen to this. In the name of this is a good man, it's hard to find. The grandmother didn't want to go to Florida. She wanted to visit some of her connections in East Tennessee. That's Flannery O'Connor reading her story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. In 1959, Flannery herself. How excellent is that? But here's where I'm going to interject. This is as far as I got in this episode. This was my plan for the episode. I would describe Ms. O'Connor and talk about Richard Stern and her and her writing and her life. And then we'd go into this story of hers. We'd listen to her read it. And I would do a kind of annotated version of it. I'd play the story and comment as needed. And together, you and I would marvel at her voice, her accent, her intonations of different words, her confidence, and her command. And we'd conclude by speculating, by wondering if the ending of this short story is the best ending of any short story anywhere. It's so good. And then I stopped, because we can do all that. That's worthwhile. It's one of the reasons we're here, analyzing literature, celebrating it. But we also have to do more than that because of this. I'm warning you, there's some disturbing language here. It's coming up straight ahead. If you have tender ears listening, skip ahead 30 seconds or so. This is a passage from later in the story. A good man is hard to find. Oh, look at the cute little piccaninny, she said, and pointed to a negro child standing in the door of the shack. Wouldn't that make a picture now, she asked. And they all turned and looked at the little negro out the back window. He waved. He didn't have any witches on, June Star said. He probably didn't have any, the grandmother explained. Little niggers in the country don't have nice things like we do. And that's when I remembered. There's a whole other side of Flannery O'Connor that I haven't even touched. This passage in this story, I had come to peace with it once upon a time. And then there were some subsequent revelations about Flannery O'Connor that came out in a biography, which I had completely forgotten. I was not as in tune with Flannery O'Connor and Flannery O'Connor literary studies when this came out, but I half remembered it. And as soon as I saw the passage, it all came back that we have more we need to look at when it comes to the case of Flannery O'Connor. It's going to tell us a lot about her and a lot about ourselves, ourselves as readers, how we treat authors from the past. Here's what her biographer found, that Flannery O'Connor, in her personal life, in her letters, she told racial, maybe racist jokes. Someone referred to her as a connoisseur of them. The civil rights movement, quote, interested her not at all, end quote says the biographer, but clearly that wasn't completely true. It did interest her, only sometimes she seemed to be on the wrong side of it, criticizing the protesters, criticizing its leaders, criticizing the people that we, or at least I, now admire. There are some good things, too. She had some praise for Martin Luther King Jr., though some will say it was the praise was too measured, not strong enough. And you can say what you want. I'll preview some of the arguments here, that this was her era, her milieu, her background, her social group, and they had problems with race, with dealing with issues of race. And the whole country did, frankly. I'm not letting white northerners off the hook here. And I get it. We shouldn't judge the past by the standards of the present. It's a, a good principle in general, some of the time. But Flannery O'Connor, well, frankly, I thought she was better than that. I thought 
she was better. This isn't 1750 we're talking about. It's 1950. It's late enough, and the issues are visible enough that we have a right to expect more from a great writer than being a prisoner of the worst parts of her era, if that's what happened. A lot more. What's the number one skill or or feature or quality that we need from authors? I think it's empathy. You can say what you want. I'll put empathy up there against any of the other qualities. Barack Obama claimed that for politicians or presidents as well. He was widely mocked for that. Empathy? Ha 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 ha. Don't you know that as an American president, you're supposed to say strength or courage or resolve? Poor Obama. He's really, he's really a writer dressed up as a politician. That's how he's constitutionally formed. That's the hat that he's most comfortable wearing. And he's not wrong. He's not. Politicians need empathy? Of course they do. Anyone leading, anyone in a position of power, whether it's cops or gang leaders or dictators or wardens or teachers or anyone, I want them to have empathy. I do. Or Supreme Court justices. Actually, now that I think about it, that might have been what Obama was talking about. What do you look for in a judge? He says, empathy. And everyone laughed. That was viewed as a gaffe. You're supposed to say brains, you idiot. You're supposed to say you look for someone who believes that such and such opinion was wrongly decided. You're supposed to say big government, little government, come down on some side. You're not supposed to say empathy. You sound like a girl. What is this? Frozen? You've been watching Frozen again, Mr. Obama? That's the criticism. I think it's wrong. I think empathy is underrated, severely underrated, in all kinds of professions. But not writing, not literature. We accept in literature the importance of empathy. We recognize that empathy is supremely important for an author to have. Who could dispute that? We admire authors for their prose style and their adjectives and their, I don't know, descriptions of the weather, but we know what we want. We want an author to create believable characters who want things. That's conflict. That's story. It comes from want. It comes from wanting and not getting. That's all it is. That's our story. A character wants and struggles to get. But for us to believe in the want, for us to feel the want, to feel the not getting, to immerse ourselves in the struggle and the excitement and the disappointment and the fear and the triumph, for all that to work, we have to care about the characters. And for that to work, the author has to be able to put themselves in the minds of their characters, to know what that character would say or do, to know what that character wants, to know to deeply know, not just what, but how that character wants and how they feel about it and how they feel about it when they don't get it. It requires empathy to get to that point, to get to a believable point where we believe in the characters. So, how much of this did Flannery get? How much do we lay at her door? How do we read her if she didn't transcend her environment? If she wasn't one of the best angels, if she was only one of the better angels, if she was just an okay angel, a 51% good angel, or what if she wasn't an angel at all? If she lacked empathy, is she any good at all? Remember her comment, the sacrament is, if it's just a metaphor, then to hell with it. Well, if Flannery O'Connor was a racist then to hell with her. Is that where we are? Is that what we're saying? Look, before you send me angry emails, I'm not saying that yet. I'm saying there are more questions here for us to examine. This issue needs to be considered, not because it's important to be politically correct, whatever that is these days, not because 
certain words trigger certain reactions. I'm not saying to pull books off the shelves. I'm not saying we shouldn't engage. That's the opposite of what I'm saying. I'm saying it's important for us to read carefully, examine our reactions to the works, figure out what we make of this, how we should treat these issues, what should be our system for treating them. That's what literature is. Remember, it calls forth all our powers. We don't shrink from hard questions. We take them on. One of our questions for ourselves is, are we reading this too casually? Are we missing signs that an author is not as astute as we thought? How do we think about this story? Are we being pushed somewhere we don't want to be? Are we learning anything? Are we engaged? Are we disagreeing with it? Is there any profit in any of this? Are we stretched in any way? Are we improved? Or are we just reconfirming our beliefs? Are we the audience? Are we the right audience for this? And there's also this question. Setting aside Flannery's personal character, because writers are always flawed, just like every human who's ever walked the planet, Setting aside her personal flaws, does her writing transcend it? We're forced to ask this question about authors who were on the wrong side of fascism, Nazism, and racism. So before we continue with this story, remember, just a couple of weeks ago when I started all this, I was ready to declare this story one of the greatest stories in American literature. And now... I think we need to put that judgment on hold, take a closer look at what we think. We're going to look at these issues. We're going to use Flannery's own words to dig into them. We'll take a close look at the story for what it does, what it does well, what it does less well, and what we think of all of it. So stay buckled. That's going to be part two of our look at Flannery O'Connor and her story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed this introduction to Flannery O'Connor and this preview of the issues we're going to be looking at in the future. If you have any thoughts, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. Or you can leave me a comment at historyofliterature.com or jackwilson.com. Let me know what you think. These are not easy issues. I'd love to have more voices, more opinions, more things to consider. I'm sure you have thoughts. And I'd love to hear them. We're also on Facebook at uh, History of Literature. And as a reminder, you can find us on iTunes and other podcast apps. Android is very easy to do, people. There are lots of ways to subscribe. You go to the purple icon on your phone, the app icon, the one that says podcasts, and tap it, type in History Literature, and there we are. And then... Use your phone to broadcast this message to all your friends. Here's a message you could send. Dear friends, I just subscribed to a wonderful podcast called The History of Literature with Jack Wilson. Check it out. You won't be disappointed. And then you can sign it. Love me. Love, comma, insert your name. I I don't know why... It just feels right. Okay. Off the rails again. We'll be back on the rails next time, I promise. We'll be looking at... What do we have next? Bad poetry? That's coming up soon. And endings. Short story endings, novel endings. Conversation with the president of the Literature Supporters Club. We have some good guests in the works. And eventually... Soon in the future, we'll return to the subject of Flannery O'Connor. It's all part of our journey. I'm Jack Wilson. 
Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.